Good morning. I hope you have been following along with us as we walk through the letter of Paul to the Ephesians and talk about how there's no higher name than what name? Name of Jesus. So continue with me in chapter 5, verse 1, and we'll read together. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Amen? You'll know by now that as we walk through Paul's letters, they're sort of divided into two halves. There's an indicative section and an imperative section, and that means there's a section about who we are and what God has done and what He has made us into, and a section about how we are to live in light of those truths. Our behavior flows out of what it is that God has done. That's how it works. And I want to go back for a second to chapter 2. You might remember that Mike preached on this a few months ago, beginning in chapter 2-1, one of the most important passages in the whole Bible, we read this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We read here what it was like before, before the cross, Before God acted decisively in our favor, we hear about how we were dead. We had sins and trespasses that we walked in. We were following the course of this world. We were associated with the sons of disobedience. Things were not okay. That was a bad situation. Everything about it was bad. And the way that we walked was connected to the way that we were. We were dead. So we did the sorts of things that dead and sinful people do. And then the rest of that chapter... Paul describes to us what it is that God accomplished in Jesus on the cross. That is, he lived a perfect life in our place and he died a shameful death in our place. 
He was offered up as a sacrifice that was pleasing to God so that we might not have the wrath of God poured out on us if we put our trust in Him as we read in 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And many of us know those passages, but it's the next verse that I want to highlight. Verse 10, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I want you to see the word walk. Paul is drawing a distinction in the way that we walk. In verses 1 and 2, we used to walk like dead people do. We were walking in sins and trespasses. Now in verse 10, we can walk in the good works that God has prepared ahead of time for us to do. We walk now as people who are alive. Why? Because God made us alive. We do good works to be saved? No. Because we have been saved. So that's what Paul talks about in chapter 2, and in chapters 3 through 6, he begins to unpack what it means to walk as a living believer, someone who's under the name of Jesus Christ. He's carved out a community that's come together, that believes in Jesus, that's saved by Jesus, that's alive in Jesus, and now he describes to us what it means to live like that. And you might see throughout the entire sections of chapters 3 through 6, Paul uses the word walk, 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 walk over and over and over again. He uses it three times in this section. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 21, there are at least 15 commands or prohibitions. Paul's like, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. And it becomes a little overwhelming, but I want to boil it down to four ways to walk and four ways not to walk. Paul teaches us to walk in love and not in lust. He teaches us to walk in light and not in darkness, to walk in wisdom and not in foolishness, to walk in worship and not in drunkenness. Now, I hear pages flapping. Just relax. There are only four blanks. I'm going to come back to all these points. Everyone's going to get 100%. Just calm down. Just calm down. So stay with me, okay? All right. Let's return to verse 1 and read the first five verses again. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Paul begins this section by saying, be imitators of God as beloved children of God. That line is a harrowing demand and a beautiful reminder. The harrowing demand is this, be like God. What? How is that possible? Be like God. Now, remember, everything that Paul says for us to do flows out of who it is that God is and how it is that, or what it is that God has done. And even our morality, the way we live life is derived from the character of God. If you leave the church building, you go interact with people who have no faith in God or don't believe in God or don't believe in the Bible, morality becomes a really tri tricky, like difficult issue to navigate. What is right and what is wrong? How do we agree on what's right and what is wrong? As Christians, we have the resource of God himself. What is right and what is wrong is derived from, it flows from the very character of the God we worship. He says, be imitators of God. And that's gonna stand at the head of everything else that he says. The beautiful reminder is this, as his beloved children. Remember, we were dead. 
We were associated with the sons of disobedience. We walked in sins and trespasses. But now we are beloved children of God because he has purchased us through the blood of Jesus. You might also remember that at the time Paul is writing, father and son language was important. People assumed that you were kind of like your father. If your father was a fisherman, you did fisherman sorts of things. If your father was a carpenter, you did carpentry sorts of things. If your father was a good guy, people expected you to be a good guy. If your father was not a great guy, they had some expectations of you as well. Paul is saying, act like the father you now have. And then he describes for us what it is that true love looks like. His example is the greatest expression of love in human history. That is Jesus himself. He says, let me show you what love is. It's confusing. A lot of people disagree. They say different things about what love is. Let me show you what it is. It's in the person of Jesus who lives a perfect life and dies a shameful death all the way to the last drop, gives himself up completely for those whom God loved. Jesus dies for us. So Paul's like, you want to know what love looks like? That's where you look. That's what true love looks like. And the extension of that is this. Your whole life, as you seek to love other people, you raise other people up and you lower yourself. That is the order of love. That's what true love looks like. Even God himself does this. He humbles himself by taking the form of a human all the way to a cross. Raise other people up. Consider other people's good more important than your own good. Consider other people's desires and ambitions more important than your own. Seek the very good of other people as opposed to yourself. That's what Paul's saying. That's like, that's how you love. That's how you love. That's what true love looks like. That is the real thing. And then he describes the counterfeit, the forgery, the thing that we often think is love but isn't love. In verse 3, he talks about sexual immorality and filthiness and so on and so forth. He's describing licentiousness and lust. Now he's talking to the first century um, group of believers in Ephesus, a culture and a people that is completely pervaded by the sexual liberality of the day. Sex was as liberal then as it is now. In fact, it's probably more liberal. Casual and recreational sex, sex as a part of religion, prostitution was acceptable. All these things were in the surrounding culture that Paul is talking to. He's saying to them, don't live like that, but he's saying to us also, don't live like that. Because our culture can't draw a distinction that's clear between lust and between love. If you walk on or if you go on to television and you watch movies and you read books, the picture of love you find is not a committed married couple who dies daily for the sake of their spouse. It's young people who give in to their own inclinations. It's people having recreational sex. And that can be like drawn out to a further thought. So um, the important thing to understand there is this. Love says, I care about the needs and desires of other people more than myself. Lust says, no, 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 it's about me and my self-gratification. I put myself before other people. We see that in adultery. We see that in fornication. We see that in all forms of liberal sex that are not considering other human beings aside from yourself. It can be drawn all the way out to the example of pornography where people engage in sex for the gratification of those who are not even present. Lust says, no, no, I care about me most, not other people. Love says, other people's needs and desires and good above my own. Then Paul explains to us the tool we can use to love more effectively, to truly love other people. He's already provided the example. That is Jesus' example on the cross. Now he describes to us the tool. He says, thankfulness. 
Now, you may remember that Paul says, not only are you not to do these things, you shouldn't even joke about them. No crude joking, no filthiness, because Paul knows that out of the overflowing of our heart, our mouth speak. He says, okay, so if you're making jokes like this, it, it should indicate to you maybe your disposition towards these sorts of things, how you feel about them, the road you're walking. He says, let me give you something else to do with your words. Thankfulness, thankfulness. Thankfulness becomes a powerful tool where we can learn to love other people more effectively because it is a tool that draws our eyes away from ourselves. That's what thankfulness does. Let me give you an example. When I was younger, when I was in my 20s, right, my room always looked like the FBI had just searched it for drugs. It was just a wreck all the time, 100% of the time. I look back at myself and I'm just like, oh my gosh, I hate 21-year-old me. I hate him. As I've gotten a little bit older, I realized, no, no, I want things organized. I want dishes in the dishwasher. I want clothes hung up and folded. I want things cleaned and wiped off, and I want things stacked. Now, um, my wife is not as much like that as I am. I've asked for permission to tell the story. Just, don't you okay? What she likes to do is hang things on things. Like every, every knob, doorknob, every handle, every corner, every corner of a door, anything you could hang something on, she wants to, it's like our house is just a giant Christmas tree. Like, just hang things on things. So that, like, stresses me out, right? So I'm like, I know what I'll do. I'll be a great husband. I will go to Costco. I will be a big box of hooks. I'm going to come home. I'm going to put hooks everywhere. I'm going to walk around, put hooks up, create safe hanging spaces. I'm going to organize her disorganization. Husband win. I go home, put those hooks up, create some spaces. Yes, go to sleep. Feel pretty good. I wake up the next morning, and I walk out into the room. There's some empty hooks. That's okay. But there's also a thing like hung on a lamp, which doesn't even seem possible to me. Like the, the laws of physics are being broken. And you're like, oh, man. You guys are hearing this thinking, Andrew, you've got to calm down, right? It's a small annoyance. I get it, right? I get it. My eyes are on myself. And this is where the tool of thankfulness becomes so powerful. It's a small annoyance. It's not a big deal. But as I begin to thank God for all the things he has blessed with me, blessed me with in my wife, all these small, they just fade. It's not a big deal, right? Thankfulness, it draws my eyes away from the way I feel and directs them to God who has blessed me with my wife. And it becomes so easy to love her. Why? Because my eyes aren't on myself. They've been directed away from myself. Husbands, regularly make lists of why you are thankful that God gave you the wife that you have. Wives, do the same thing. It will be powerful. It will be powerful. And if that list is hard to make at first, try, continue, work at it, practice. Love is something you practice at. Do it with coworkers. Do it with other employees you work with. Do it with your friends. Do it with your neighbors. Do it with the like, weird uncles and aunts that come to um, Thanksgiving and they have political views that annoy you. Right? Do it with them also. Here's why. As your eyes are directed away from yourself, the order of love becomes more apparent. You raise other people up above yourself. Why? Because that's what God did. That's what God did. That's why Paul can say, here's what true love looks like. Like Jesus, who died for people who didn't deserve it. Ooh, that's how we love. We place other people's interests and desires above our own. Always. That's how we love. And you know what? There's no form of conflict that cannot be resolved if we're a community that is continually seeking to raise other people up above ourselves. Nothing. Then Paul continues. He turns to walking in light instead of darkness. Read with me, starting in verse 6. 
let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Paul is, in some senses, showing a progression here. If you walk in lust, you will continue to walk into darkness. If you walk in love, you will walk in light. And he uses light imagery, and light imagery appears all over the Bible in the New Testament. The most famous like, example of light imagery is probably Jesus himself. He says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. <clears throat> and this sort of imagery is all over the Bible. It indicates to us what is good and what is evil, and Paul is using it to describe to us doing good things and doing bad things. He's talking about purity and impurity, righteousness and unrighteousness. And coupled together in this section are two warnings. The first warning we read actually in verse 5. It says this, you can be sure that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Paul says, that sort of behavior is telling. Paul is not saying that good works save you. He is saying this, habitual and regular returns to sin without repentance indicate to us who it is that we really are. I want you to hear this. The message of Christianity is not believe in Jesus, do whatever you want. It's believe in Jesus and be transformed. It's followed by another warning. This one having to do with empty words. Paul says, let no one uh, let no one deceive you with empty words. Let no one deceive you for empty words. Paul's continuing to describe what it means to walk into the darkness. And as you walk in darkness, sin becomes harder to identify and address. The longer you've been sinning, the less apparent it is to you. Paul is saying, sometimes when you walk in darkness for a long time, you can't even see the sin anymore. You sort of get handed over to it, as Paul says in Romans. And this, this is when empty words become really, really deceiving. And the empty word is something like this. You begin to say this about your sin. It's not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a deal. Or you say, it's not hurting anyone else. Or you say, it's none of anyone else's business. Or you say, I'll just delete that browser history. No one will find it. All of this boils down to one deceptive and empty word. That is this, that somehow sin could be tolerable to God. It cannot be. God is righteous, and He's called His people to be righteous, not because that is what saves them, but because He has already saved them and transformed them and made them something new. Because they're His children, they more naturally do these things, as opposed to before, where they were associated with the sons of disobedience, following the course of the world, completely dead, and walked in the sins that were killing them. So that's the first thing about walking in light. It means that we seek to be righteous before God, that we care about discerning what is pleasing to the Lord, that we want to be associated with the fruits of light, which are goodness and truth and righteousness, and not the unfruitful works of darkness. But that is not the only thing that Paul is trying to get across by using the imagery of light. Light does something else. 
you can't walk into a room and like make it darker by turning something on. When you turn a light on, the darkness is dispelled. Darkness cannot be in the presence of light. It flees from light. And when we see this analogy as referring to the church, it means this. We work to expose sin to each other. Now, you hear that and you go, uh, that sounds kind of aggressive. What it doesn't mean is I grab randomly one of you, bring you on stage, and then try and expose your sin to everyone. (laughs) That wouldn't go great most of the time. What it does mean is that we care about each other enough to address sin in each other's lives. There's a couple ways that I think this can go wrong. The first is some of us are so afraid of conflict that we can never imagine addressing someone else's sin. If that's us, our like, value we place on liking people or people liking us is way too high. We just want everyone to like us. The other way this goes wrong might be a little bit more common. Some of us hear, oh, we should expose sin, and we start making lists of people we're going to expose. <laughs> like that guy, that guy, 100% that guy, that person for sure. If we do that, Our estimation of our own righteousness is probably too high. Neither of these cases are built on the actual motivation for addressing sin. Paul has already given it to us. He says, walk in love, raising other people up above yourself, seeking their good above your own. If that is truly our concern, then we actually can address sin. We actually can do it because addressing sin then becomes not a means for revenge, but a means for restoration. Not a show of strength, but a form of self-sacrifice. It is not easy to rebuke someone. It is not easy to point out sin in someone's life. Here's how it's possible. If you truly love the community you are a part of, if we genuinely seek to raise other people up above ourselves, then addressing sin is possible because there are few things more powerful than a rebuke from someone you know truly does love you. Additionally, godly people are easy to correct. We can have a community like this. A community that generously and lovingly and graciously seeks to address the sin of each other, that seeks to fight for purity as a group and righteousness, not because it saves us, but because it should be indicative of who we are. Look what Paul says in Galatians 6.1. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you, are spirit, you who are spiritual should restore him. In a spirit of gentleness, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Paul is saying, you should fight for this as a community, but the motivation is because you love each other and you want to obey God. We can have a community that has no gossip if this is how we acted. No gossip. We can have a community that has no sexual immorality if this is how we acted. We can have a community that doesn't have unneeded conflict or issues with pride. We could be a community carved out under the name of Jesus that is a powerful witness to those outside our doors. Can you imagine what we would look like? People said, oh, there's this group of hundreds of people, and they really do love each other. They don't talk trash about each other when other people aren't there. They don't stand on their own pride. They regularly sacrifice themselves for the sake of other members of their group. That could be us, amen? That could be us. Now, Paul turns to his third point. He says, walk in wisdom and not in foolishness. Read with me, starting in verse 15. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but instead understand what the will of the Lord is. Paul has kind of been on defense. He's been talking about protecting the righteousness of the community, 
having the community love the other members of that community well, having a well-functioning group that's under the name of Jesus, that are beloved children of God, that aren't like the sons of disobedience. Now he kind of goes on the offense. He uses a word that he borrows from commerce, from the marketplace. It's a word that means always looking for a good bargain to snatch up. He says, making the most of the time. That's the word he's using. We just had a very important American holiday, Black Friday. (laughs) Or if you're lazy, if you're lazy, Cyber Monday, right? Black Friday is very important to our culture. It's where we watch groups of normal people become riotous mobs, (laughs) right? People are like, that TV is only going to be $3.99 one day a year. I'm getting that TV. I went one year real early, bought a computer, got stolen the next week. It's okay, I deserve it. Don't worry about me. Okay. Why are people just like animated by Black Friday? Why are they animated? Because they want to take a little bit for the little time that it's available and make a lot out of it, right? They want to get a good deal because it's only going to last for a little while, so they have to be aggressive and out looking for the good deal. They're online the day before. Which place has the best Black Friday deals? They're cutting coupons out. They're ready to go because they're going to take a little bit. They're going to make a lot out of it. They're not going to miss their chance at that deal. That's the urgency Paul is describing here. The same urgency you have to get like that television for really, really cheap, like unreal cheap, the one day it's that cheap. That sort of urgency, <coughs> that's how you should be living out the good works that God has prepared ahead of time for you to do. He's like, he has them ready for you. He's prepared them ahead of time. He knows what they are. They're opportunities for us to love each other well, to love other people well, to seek justice, to feed the hungry, to heal the sick, and most importantly, to tell people about Jesus who don't know him yet. He's prepared those opportunities for us ahead of time. He knows what they are. We should be seeking them with urgency every day, like Black Friday, every day. Now, now what, if we, what if we woke up every morning and that was our prayer? Father, give me an urgency of heart for the good works that you've prepared ahead of time before. What if that was our prayer? That would transform us as a community and it would increase our witness profoundly. Paul says, be actively wise. Be actively wise. Don't settle for passive foolishness. Don't hide in a house or a bedroom or an apartment or a basement or a cubicle just waiting for Jesus to come back. He has prepared good works ahead of time for us to do. Amen? Then he says, don't be foolish. Discern the will of the Lord. How do we do that? How do we discern the will of the Lord? How do we better do the good works that he's prepared ahead of time for us to do? Well, any Christian who was Jewish, living in Ephesus, hearing Paul's letter being read, hearing terms of like being wise and unwise, wise, wisdom and foolishness, would immediately think of wisdom literature in the Old Testament. They would think of Proverbs. I'll read you one. You. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding... Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth, come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. He's saying, listen, you have a resource. And if you've been counting resources, remember, I was like, Paul's going to say, do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't. It's going to be overwhelming, but he's providing resources for living this way over the course of this passage. He's like, here's one resource. You are to imitate God as his beloved children. 
Here's another resource. Look to the example of Jesus. Here's another resource. Have a thankful heart. And here's another one. The very word of God given to us in providence. I have one. Most of you have one. It's on your phones probably. It's free online. We got them in the back. We'll give them away. The very word of God to guide us and to teach us to be wise. To teach us to live out and walk in the good works that he has prepared ahead of time for us to do. Amen? Okay. Last thing. Last way to walk. Walk in worship and not in drunkenness. Walk in worship and not in drunkenness. Read with me starting in verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul says there's the thing to be filled with, that is the Spirit, and there's the thing not to be filled with, a forgery, a counterfeit, that is wine that makes you drunk. Don't become debaucherous. Don't become drunk on wine. And that's not figurative. <laughs> he really does mean don't get drunk. Did you hear that, younger people? He really does say that. And it doesn't just mean alcohol. It means any substance in which you become overfull and it diffuses your senses and disables you from obeying God. Not just wine, other things. Here's why it's such a powerful counterfeit, though. What we think we experience when we're drunk is what we actually should be experienced full of the Spirit. We think we're making friends when we're drunk. We're not. <laughs> we think we're experiencing unity when we're drunk. We're not. Whatever great, brilliant idea you had when you drank too much, it was not a good idea. <laughs> really, really. However, the Spirit is the real thing. Drunkenness is the forgery. The Spirit is the actual reality that we can live in. And Paul describes to us here how we can be filled by the Spirit. It's in the context, most awesomely and appropriately and often, of worship. He uses a bunch of words for singing. Worship. And he tells us at least three things about worship. At least three things about worship. Worship first it has two audiences. It has two audiences. One of the audiences is obvious, that of God himself. We sing out in thanksgiving and praise to the God that we worship, the God who became a man, who died on a cross, who rose again and made it possible for any of this to happen in the first place. The other audience, though, is each other. As we gather together in the unity of the Spirit and sing praises to our God, we remind each other of the truth of the gospel and what it is that God has accomplished. We remind each other. It is good that we can hear each other's voices when we sing praises. It unifies us. He says, sing songs to each other. Second thing, worship is diverse. Worship is diverse. Some of these words, and there's a series of them, mean slightly different things. He says songs and odes and spiritual songs. And you can get a commentary and you can look through and read what each of these words probably conveys. I'm not going to get into those details right now, but here's what I will do. Some of these words, I will explain this. Some of these words, they convey spontaneity and some of them don't. Some of them convey quoting of scripture <coughs> and some of them don't. Some of them convey the use of instruments and some of them don't. The point is this, it is not the style, it is not the style of our worship that matters, it's its substance that matters. Worship can be beautiful and diverse as we engage in it together. 
The last thing, worship is to be characterized by thankfulness. Worship is to be characterized by thankfulness. As we walk through this passage and we hear all the things that Paul is commanding us to do in light of the gospel, it becomes overwhelming. How do we do these things? How do we do these things? How is it possible that we can do all the things that you've commanded us to do here? How can we actually love each other? How can we actually walk in light? How can we actually be wise? How can we actually have true hearts of worship? And Paul is going to describe that. And he does so by saying, the Spirit is with you. God himself is with you. We believe in God the Father. We believe in God the Son. And we believe in God the Spirit who is present with us and makes these things possible. And we experience that very profoundly in the context of worship. I want to tell you a story about worship. Can I tell you a story about worship? i got plenty of time, so I'm just going (coughs) to... It's the last service. Okay, so I grew up in this church. My whole life, I've heard Alan sing worship songs. My whole life. I've heard a bunch of songs that he's written. We sang a song today, uh, The Shelter of Your Wings, right? You know what I'm talking about? Right? I remember as a kid, my dad would put the tape deck in, he'd crank it up and sweep the floor, and I'd hear that song. That is the context of worship that I grew up in. That's the style of worship I grew up in, contemporary, and writing your own songs, and musical instruments, and electronics, and words on the screen, and the lights are down. That's the sort of worship I grew up in. But I just recently experienced worship in a slightly different context. I went to some conferences, and they're academic conferences where people gather together who study the Bible. And some people who study the Bible really actually believe in the Bible. I'm one of them. And there's thousands and thousands of others. But there are some people who study the New Testament that like weirdly don't believe it. It's crazy. So I meet people at these conferences who study the New Testament but are kind of like ambivalent about it. Or they're even hostile to it. But I got one night with a bunch of other Christians, other guys and men and women who study the New Testament but also believe it. It was a dinner put on by a publisher and a house um, called Tyndale House, which is a small school, small group associated with the University of Cambridge. And they've just recently finished completing a new edition of the Greek New Testament. And it was a lot of work. It was like 10 years of work and hundreds of people involved and thousands and thousands of hours. And they spent the night describing the work they had been doing as they were about to release this Bible. And in this room, there are men and women who are Presbyterians. There are Baptists. There are, uh, you know, Charismatics. There are Church of England and Anglicans and Church of Scotland and so on and so forth. Different denominations, different backgrounds, probably different worship styles. But they're all there because they have dedicated their lives to studying the Word academically and at the same time honoring God through their endeavors. So they're talking about this Bible. Here's the thing. I like boring stuff. I really do. There's a lot of boring stuff that I like. This stuff was like the most boring stuff. Like, it was like papyri and manuscripts and somehow math is involved. And I'm just like, whoa, right? And after an hour of this, after an hour, this gentleman walks up to the lecture and after they've kind of described how they went about completing this project, and in this group that of 200 people from different backgrounds and different places and different countries, and there's lights that are on, and there's like no music or instrumentation, no words on the screen. He says, join me. And he says, sings. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. And I watch like 200 hearts snap together in worship. He can't even get through the word praise before people are belting out, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And I'm profoundly affected by this moment of worship. There's no music. There are no words. Alan's not even there. 
And all of these men and women are genuinely united in worshiping their own God. And I think, man, church like can be hard sometimes. We fight, and it's hard to get along, and there's conflict, and it's complicated. And the outside of the church is also complicated, and it's difficult. How do we go about living our Christian life? How do we do all the things that Paul has commanded us to do? And then I can hear 200 people suddenly in a second who share the same God join together and sing praise God from whom all blessings flow. And I think, oh, it's possible because God is with us. And in worship, we experience that profoundly. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the work that your son accomplished at the cross. We thank you for the redeeming work that happened there. We thank you for the justifying work that happened there. We thank you for the adopting work that happened there. We thank you for his perfect life and his brutal death. And we thank you for his glorious and victorious resurrection. We thank you also that the Spirit is present with us now, that your Spirit, the Spirit, is present with us now, continuing the work of sanctifying us and unifying us and preparing us for the glorious future that we have. We thank you also that Jesus is coming back. I pray as we await that, we live actively. We seek daily the good works that you prepared ahead of time for us to do that we magnify and glorify your name and the name of your Son in our interactions. That we tell people about the hope they can find through the work of the cross in the name of Jesus Christ, which is greater than every other name. For all these things, in that name, amen. We're going to do...